Chapter 19 of The Master Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Mystery by John W. Gray and Arthur B. Reeve. Chapter 19. Every fiber of Zeta's body was galvanized into action as she threw the whole weight of her body against the elevator emergency control switch. There was a sputtering of blue flame as the connection was made, and Zeta closed her eyes. With a shudder, she heard the great elevator strike the cellar floor and then rebound. She dared not open her eyes. The last thing that she had seen was Locke struggling frantically to escape from under the elevator that was only a few inches above him and seemed destined to crush out his life. Slowly, fearfully, she opened her eyes. Locke's body lay motionless at her feet, separated almost literally by only the breadth of a hair from the shaft. The relief, the reaction from her terrible emotions, made Zita half-hysterical. Trembling in every limb, she made her way to Locke and fell on her knees by him. She wrapped her arms about him and held his head up. It was thus that she was holding him, when his eyes slowly opened and gazed questioningly into her own, his brow knitted in perplexity. Then, with a rush, it all came back to him. The descending elevator, Zita standing at the switch, while his life hung in the balance. His last frantic effort to escape, just before the descending elevator had grazed his head, rendering him unconscious. That Zita, at the last moment, had attempted to save his life, he did not know, nor why she now gazed at him frankly with eyes of love. It was all inexplicable to him. Another instant, and he had wrenched himself loose from Zita's arms and was struggling with the ropes that still bound him, even after he had managed to roll out from under the elevator in the last nick of time. He had suddenly realized that the sight of Eva being carried off by the emissaries had not been a hideous dream, but a terrible actuality, and at this very moment she was probably in the most imminent danger. Zita realized that he wanted freedom to rush to Ava's assistance. Had she dared, she would have refused to release him from her arms, would at least have hindered his untying his bonds. But there was a masterful something about his silent demand to be released that would admit of no refusal. In a few seconds Locke completed the freeing of himself and was dashing madly toward the door through which the gang, carrying Ava, had passed. The door was unlocked, and hesitating not an instant, Quentin dashed through and into a large room. Ava, the gunny sack removed and still unconscious, lay on the floor. The emissaries were grouped around her. In the background, dimly visible, stood the iron monster. Startled, they looked up as Locke rushed into the room. But before they could do more, Locke had whipped out his automatic, and point-blank was blazing away at the murderous crew. Two emissaries fell dead or mortally wounded. The others scattered. Only the automaton, man of iron that he was, showed no sign of fear. 
Instead, he advanced ponderously upon Locke. The automatic barked again, but did not succeed in deterring the monster. Locke realized the futility of using this puny weapon against such a foe. He dashed toward Eva. It was the work of only an instant to snatch her up, practically from under the monster's feet, to turn, and to carry her through the door by which he had been brought in. Holding her in one arm, he slammed the door shut and shot the bolt. He was just in time, for the next instant the door bulged out beneath the dead weight of the automaton as it hurled its massive form against the other side. Zita was still waiting at the elevator shaft when Locke, carrying Eva in his arms, entered. At the sight, Zita's whole body expressed her unquenched hatred of the unconscious girl. Her eyes narrowed, her lips became livid, and her hands clenched as though she would like to strike the helpless Eva. "'Zita!' demanded Locke suspiciously. "'Why did you hesitate to save my life?' "'Because,' she replied, and her voice indicated the force of her answer, whether it were really the truth or not. "'I love you, and would not save you for her!' Zita turned and ran up the stairs leading to Old Meg's, as Locke turned to try to revive Eva. But the hammer-blows of the monster resounded throughout the cellar. At any moment the door might come crashing down, and Locke and Eva might again be at the mercy of the Iron Fiend. Locke caught up Eva in his arms again, and, groping, sought the exit of the warehouse. He dared not follow Zita through old Meg's den. Love that could for any reason hesitate or injure the one loved was incomprehensible to him. He felt that the hag's den might now be but an ambush, and that Zita might have run ahead to warn the uninjured emissaries of his coming. By a lucky chance he found the path leading directly to the warehouse steps and the street. Ava's speedster had not been moved or tampered with, and he placed Ava gently in the seat, climbed in, and started the motor. As he did so, three emissaries came running out of the alley leading to old Meg's. But, shooting the gears into high speed, Locke easily evaded them and turned up the first corner. He was going to take Ava to the first doctor's or a drug store, but it proved not to be necessary. The rush of the air as the car moved rapidly revived her, and in a few moments she was quite herself again, eagerly questioning him about her rescue. Although they were thankful for their escape, they still could not blind themselves to the fact that all their efforts had been in vain, that they stood no nearer to their great desire, and that, at least until now, their enemies had proved too wily and too strong for them. But they were young, courageous, and resourceful, and as they drew up before Brent Rock they were busily engaged with plans for the future. It was the following afternoon in the Chinese quarter. The Celestials were celebrating one of their numerous feasts. Long, multicolored banners and streamers were hanging from every window and balcony, and were even strung across the narrow street, 
almost brushing the faces of the motley throng that passed beneath. Tom-toms and cymbals beat and clashed, while from the Chinese theater came the shrill piping of reeds and the high-pitched chanting voices of Chinamen. Street vendors cried their wares, and the windows of the oriental shops were gaily bedecked for the holiday. Through the dense, happy throng a man made his way. He, too, was an oriental, but of a different race. A giant in size, he calmly pushed and shoved the smaller celestials out of his path, and although they chattered angrily at him, their resentment went no farther, for his size and the menace of his swarthy face made them pause. Before the entrance of a curio shop he halted and consulted a card. Then, satisfied that he had found his destination, he picked up a wicker carrying case that for the moment he had placed on the curb and entered the shop. A Chinaman stepped forward, scrutinized him closely, and, nodding significantly, bade the newcomer follow him. They went to the back of the shop. The Chinese clapped his hands, and a panel in the wall slid back, disclosing a stairway. The newcomer stepped through the aperture, and the panel closed behind him. He mounted the stairs and came to a room, magnificent in its oriental splendor. Priceless rugs covered the floor and walls, while on wonderfully carved teakwood stands reposed ancient porcelains, specimens of bygone dynasties, antique arms and armor cunningly wrought, jades and ivories marvelously fashioned by master craftsmen long since dead. Seen through the filmy haze of rising incense, the room was a veritable treasure-house of oriental art. On low settees, a few richly clad Chinese were reclining, and in a far corner, gazing intently into a globe of crystal, sat a man of the same race as the newcomer a Madagascan. Startled at the entrance of the giant, he left off his shadow-gazing and came hastily forward, cringing as he did so. The giant, in an impressive, booming voice, now spoke for the first time. I, the Strangler, have come from Madagascar with the great torture. A door opened, and Dr. Q entered the room, his head wagging from side to side. As he caught sight of the Madagascan, he stopped short and put his hand to his head, with a gesture of perplexity, striving piteously to place the stranger. He could not succeed. With a half-running, half-stumbling gait, he withdrew to a corner of the room and furtively watched the two Madagascans. There came the sound of a gong, a panel slid back, and into the room there majestically swept a Chinaman of pure Mongolian type. He was gorgeously clad in flowing silks and wore the princely cap with a button. At a glance his piercing eye took in every detail of the room. Then he went directly to the Madagascan, whose overbearing air of assurance immediately forsook him at the Chinaman's approach. He bowed low and reverently, for it was Long Fang to whom he made obeisance. Long Fang, 
leader of the great Tong, and implacable foe to all others, a Chinese whose tentacles of power reached into every corner of the underworld, spreading terror. In an incisive, icy voice that sent a chill through the big man's frame, he now spoke. "'You have been overlong on your journey, and we have been waiting for you.' Then, with a menace in his voice, he snarled, "'It is well for you that you came at last.' The big man shuddered and remained silent. Long Fang crossed to Dr. Q. "'The instrument of torture is here,' he said. "'The Madagascan has just brought it. He is an unrivaled strangler.' "'Let him approach,' commanded Dr. Q. Long Fang beckoned, and the stranger came forward. His eyes had been fixed on the Chinese, but now they roved to the figure of Dr. Q, and he fell back in consternation, clutching the other Madagascan by the shoulder and gasping in awestruck tones. "'In our country his magic is supreme!' With difficulty he controlled himself and bowed low, his forehead almost touching the floor. Then he looked away, cringing. "'I see that you recognize me,' Dr. Q chuckled fiendishly. "'Good. You will not be so foolish as to fail me.' "'No, no, master. I swear it by—' "'Never mind your oath. My power is my guarantee. Go. Follow Long Fang. He will direct you to the torture chamber.' Dr. Q turned on his heel and hobbled out of the room. Long Fang and the Strangler were about to proceed to the torture chamber when footsteps were heard on the stairway that led to the curio shop below. Long Fang and the Madagascan stopped and listened. Another moment, and Deluxe Dora and Paul Balcom stepped into the room. With a curt command, Paul called Long Fang to him, and the Chinaman, important as he was, hastened to obey. What was this strange power that Paul, at will, could exercise throughout the underworld? With a few terse questions, Paul ascertained the exact condition of affairs. "'You say, Long Fang, that all is ready?' "'All, Master. We only awaited your coming.' Then, with a graceful gesture, he asked, "'Will you so far honor your humble servant?' as he indicated the way into another room. Dora, followed by Paul and the Chinese, stepped through the portal and came to a Chinese temple. It was a large room, and the decorations, although equally well executed as those in the room they had just left, were actually terrifying. Flying dragons and serpents done in bronze hung from the ceiling, while on a raised dais at the farther end of the room, was an enormous squatting figure of the seven-handed god. Before it, in braziers, fire gleamed, giving off a heavy, pungent odor that was almost overpowering to occidental nostrils. On either side of the huge image hung silken curtains, in all probability covering doorways into yet other chambers. 
For the first time, Dora showed signs of interest. With the shop and the first chamber she was already familiar, but this was something new, something to give the spur to her satiated, blasé nature. She moved about the place, fingering the rare tapestries, contemplating probably what gorgeous hangings they would make for her own apartment. Dora's preoccupation gave Long Fang his opportunity to confer with Paul alone, and he moved closer to him. "'Master,' he nodded, "'why not use the beautiful lady to lure the other one into our power?' Paul shook his head negatively. He knew that Eva was aware that Dora was her enemy. "'But, Master,' persisted the Chinese, "'you told me that this Miss Brent loves her father, "'and that she would do anything for his recovery. "'Let this lady tell her that the Madagascan has brought an antidote "'that will restore his reason. "'She will come here, and we shall trap her.' "'For a moment Paul stood in deep thought, then called to Dora.' At first she laughed at the idea that Eva would even listen to her. But Dora was clever and conceited, and in the end she agreed that at least she would make the attempt. At this moment, in another quarter of town, Paul's father was ready to leave his apartment, yet from his nervousness it could readily be seen that he was waiting for someone. A Madagascan servant entered and salaamed, "'Master,' he announced, "'the Strangler has arrived from Madagascar.' Balcom's face lighted up with intense satisfaction and cunning at the news. He waved the servant away, picked up his hat and stick, and hurried out. In the library at Brent Rock, Eva and Locke were having an earnest conversation. Locke had on his motoring togs and was on the point of going out. "'By elimination,' he was saying, "'I will prove that either Paul or his father is the automaton. I am going to trap Paul.' "'Quentin,' cautioned Eva, "'for my sake, be careful.' Locke strove to quiet her fears, pointing out that his scheme was necessary in order to save her father, and in the end Eva reluctantly consented. She went with him to the porte cochere, where his car was already waiting. "'Good luck!' she tried to call cheerfully, in spite of her misgivings. Long after his car had disappeared in the distance, she stood there gazing after it, a world of anxiety in her eyes. End of chapter 19 Recording by Roger Moline